Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercane.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book four of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, Riddles, Chapter 4 through 5. Let's start the show. Disembarking from Blaine, our Cotet finds itself in a version of Topeka that has been hit by the superflu, wiping out its inhabitants. While Susanna, Eddie, and Jake are surprised to be in something similar to their world, but with just enough differences to put them on edge, Roland is distracted and realizes there is a story from his past he must tell. As they set out on I-70 towards a crystal palace in the distance, Roland begins his tale of what happened after he earned his guns from court. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, there's not quite a whole lot happening in these two chapters. It's a lot of set up in some instances as they get off of Blaine and they end up in this strange place and they find this thinny, which is an interesting concept that we'll talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. As, as as they're proceeding on I-70, they seem to go through some different worlds along the way. And then at the end, they have this palaver where Roland takes a a story from his youth and shares it with the, with the group that we haven't heard before and they haven't heard before. But not much else happens in this chapter. I found myself, or these two chapters, I found myself a little disappointed. Um, as always with King, I was engaged and kept flipping pages to see what happens what happens next, what happens next. But by the time I got to the end, I sort of felt a little, oh, is that it? Like he'd somehow tricked you into reading the phone book? <laughs> Not quite that bad. I mean, it was engaging. And, you know, I think it's always interesting to read about Roland's past. You know, I didn't actually like the past stuff when we were early on in the books. But now that we're getting more of it, I'm I'm finding myself more interested in what happened. But there just didn't seem to be a lot of meat here for me. Yeah, you had a similar comment when we were we read the River Crossing segment of the last book. I think I am more in agreement with you this time. I really like the River Crossing folks. I thought that that was uh, very revealing about an aspect of what a gunslinger is to the world in a way that we hadn't experienced before. But you're right, in this, this section, not too much happens. And not even a lot of time passes. No. It's not like, oh, we're just sort of glossing over three weeks of hiking down the highway. It's kind of like, well, it starts in the morning and I think ends that evening and that's it. Right. I, it wasn't all bad. Uh, we still got a, a few good uh, nuggets of fun in this section. Yeah, so we've got stuff to talk about. And where I wanted to start is sort of this big question. Um, when they get to Topeka, 
the Katet soon realizes that there's been a superflu catastrophe that has wiped out just about everything. They see corpses in the train station that they're at. Mm -hmm. There's nobody around. They find a old newspaper dispenser, and it's the last issue that's been published, and it talks about how throughout the land there's been this plague that's been killing people, and, and, and there's nothing left. And they, they quickly deduce, like, hey, this is what's killed everybody. And obviously, for those Stephen King fans, this seems to be the super flu that is in the stand that wiped out 99.9% .9 of the population in that book and was really the impetus for that book getting started. So my big question is, do you feel that this journey through Captain Tripp's land in Topeka enhances the stand or enhances the Dark Tower more? Because for me, I was trying to make the connection and see what what's King working at here? Why why introduce a what seems to be a third world, right? So it's not Roland's world, but it's not quite Eddie and Susanna and Jake's world because there's slight differences. You know, there's a, a baseball team they've never heard of. There's a different burger joints and soft drinks and car brands. So it's it's slightly different. So this is a another one of the many worlds. Do we learn more about the stand in this chapter or do we learn more about the Dark Tower in this chapter? I think I lean more towards we learn about the stand. I think this enhances the stand a bit more than it enhances the Dark Tower. We already know that there are other worlds than these from a Dark Tower perspective and exploring yet another world. We don't learn much. But retroactively learning about the stand that this character of Randall Flagg is now in more than that book is pretty cool. And also seeing that he can apparently travel between the world of the stand and at least this other world yep. where this Topeka is. We're also not totally sure if this is the very same world that was in the stand. Maybe this is another world that is very similar. Similar enough that it also has Captain Trips. Right. Maybe it doesn't have everything else. I think that it sort of retcons the stand to be a more complex and more interesting book. It doesn't really expand on what we know about the many worlds of the Dark Tower. I agree with you. I, I mean, I do think for those of us who, who read the stand, and I will admit that when I was in middle school and high school, it was probably my favorite book period, not my favorite Stephen King book, but my favorite book, period. And I probably read the original version two or three times. Um, my father had the paperback that I grabbed off of him somehow. I, I don't even know if he read it, but I, I read it through two or three times. Hmm. And then when the revised edition came out in the early 90s, I read that two or three times. I have a buddy who did a close analysis of the two versions of the book and pointed out all the differences he did on his blog about 10 years back, where he pointed out every single difference between the two books. And I, I've lost some of that knowledge over time, but I was very familiar with the stand. But like when I encountered this chapter, I was like, wow, so what does all this mean? You know, how does the Dark Tower impact that book versus vice versa? And I did right. think like, oh, is the magic that's happening in the Dark Tower, is that what caused the super flu in, in the book of the stand? Is this idea mm -hmm. of, of a thinny, is that the process by where the flu made its jump from one world to the other is it how randall flag travels exactly magically from point to point is it part of the breaking down of the dark tower that caused the flu and caused the wreckage of that world i do think it made me ask more questions about the stand and think about that book more than it did for this book where it just seemed like almost a plot device to get 
these folks off of Blaine, but in a place where there's no people because there can't really be any people for them to interact with at this point because it's not useful for the story for King. Like I'm just trying, I was trying to figure out what, why was it important that they end up in this type of world that had the super flu as opposed to them being in a other type of world that was just empty for no other reason. Like why did it have to be Captain Trips? And I don't know if we get that answer or if it's even important because it doesn't seem to be important to to king it's just sort of it's just sort of cool and interesting like you said and i wanted it to be more than cool it does seem to be more than cool for the stand it makes me ask a lot of questions but it didn't really make me ask any questions about the dark tower yeah i mean there are plenty of places in roland's world that are empty and you know devoid of technology devoid of people devoid of any sign of civilization that they could have landed in king could have just written the terminus location of topeka in Roland's world and make that the place where they got off the train and, and it's another like mini LUD or something. Right. But it just has no people in it. Yep. I mean, one thing occurred to me that if LUD ended with that sheer cliff face, that once you stepped off that cliff, you were actually in this super toxic cracked earth doom environment. How does it change back to the not cracks of doom environment when you get to the last stop on Blaine's rail line. Yep. So maybe going through the thinny was like an easy way for King to say, okay, well, you just luckily passed through a thinny right at the end of this monorail line so that when you walk out the door, you're not in the toxic wasteland that you just passed through this whole way. The most useful piece about them ending in Topeka is that they have a chance to find a updated wheelchair for Susanna. They go to a handicapped parking space, which Susanna was like, wow, I wish they had these in my time. Uh, remind yeah. us remind us that she's from the, from the early 60s. And Eddie's very quickly able to find a wheelchair for her. So unlike Roland, who's not able to get his fingers back, and unlike Susanna, able to get her legs back, at least they're able to get her a, a lightweight, better wheelchair. Um, I did find it a little distressing that they're just willy nilly just shooting their guns off like, oh, look, we need to get this newspaper. Bang. Let's shoot open the newspaper box. This strap is really tight on this door. Bang. Let's shoot the gun and and open it up. But really dumb moves because it gives away their position to somebody who might be off in the distance and wasn't a threat. But now they are. Yeah. Or they're just wasting precious ammo. They don't know when the next time they can resupply that kind of thing. No. And, you know, and and the ammo is obviously top of mind because that's how they're able. The thinny, which is a pretty cool idea of this sort of place where the world mesh or at least are not quite there and reality can. Been rubbed, uh, rubbed away. So it's almost. There is no barrier between the two worlds. Yeah. And it's a concept that I think King has played with before. Like it's almost, you know, the mist had this sort of dimension, although that led to a bunch of Lovecraftian type creatures that came through this this dimension. And I think of the short story, The Langoliers, where there's mm-hmm. time sort of wipes away. So a, a good idea. I like the way the thinnies presented where there's this high pitched noise that bothers them. They can sort of see a shimmering in the distance, almost like if gasoline's coming up off of a road or heat coming right. off of, of asphalt. And the way that they're able to reduce the noise is the bullets that Roland has, which were the wet ones that way back in the beginning of book two got wet on the beach. They mm-hmm. put those in their ears to 
to keep that noise out. And it's specifically those bullets, not the ones that they've brought back from our world. Somehow Roland intuits that there's something something magical, perhaps, in the nature of the bullets that come from his world. They would be able to hold off the sound of the thinny, the sound that affects them in so many physical ways. Like it makes them feel dizzy. It makes them feel nauseated. It makes them makes their eyes water like yeah. it's just like it's it makes them feel like something revolting is happening to them and it's really uncomfortable yep uh but just placing roland's bullets in their ears it doesn't actually seal out the sound but something akin to magic i guess is happening here where it's like it's canceling out the effects yep and eddie tries his bullets from the automatic and they don't do anything yep it doesn't make any difference Eddie's got to be Eddie, right? Yeah. I know you say we have to use yours, but let me try mine just in case. So after they get Susanna's wheelchair, they move on through Topeka and see some interesting things such as a Charlie the Choo Choo train that almost causes Jake to pass out, be so freaked out by it, and some other things. And Jay, while they're walking through Topeka and they're in a world that's very similar to ours, do they get any other supplies that might be useful for them, you know, other than the wheelchair? No, they do not. Really? Do you have anything to say about that, Jay? <laughs> uh, hold me back. <laughs> uh, this drove me crazy. This is an exact situation just like in the Omega Man, where like Zombie Land. They have their pick of everything because most of the people are gone. Everything's around them. They have cars that are just abandoned. They've got suitcases full of clothes. There are stores hospitals in their line of sight that they're like hmm there's a hospital over there they actually talk about it (laughs) but they don't go to these places and say hey let's get some more astin maybe we can get some more kefex how about let's look at a sporting goods store and get some more bullets and a couple more guns nobody suggests any of these (laughs) ideas let alone getting just new clothes. I mean, at this point, I'm pretty sure Jake's still walking around in his BVDs <laughs> and one sneaker, right? So get the kids some pants. There, there's got to be like a, a department store somewhere, sporting goods store. And King actually says in this section of the book, their clothes are basically falling off their bodies because they are so completely destroyed from their recent adventures. And yet nobody says, hey, that leather jacket in the backseat of that car looks like it'll fit. Give me that jacket. Like, no one does it. I just don't get it. It's kind of like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's only in the very last pages of the, of the last book that you are reminded that Arthur Dent has been wearing a bathrobe for the entire story. I fell out of my chair when I read that the first time. That's awesome. but. Roland and his gunslinging pals, I think they could use a a new pair of boots. It just struck me as bonkers that they wouldn't take advantage of having all of this at their disposal simply because they were just eager to keep walking on the highway. Yep. Rant over. Rant over. After leaving Topeka, they head out on I-70. They see this, what looks to be a crystal palace in the distance. Roland's not sure if he can tell his story or not. Then he realizes he needs to, and they have this palaver. And King seems to really jump into this idea of storytelling. We had made a reference in the previous episode 
to Scheherazade and the Thousand and One Nights, and this seems to be in that tradition, right? So we've got a story within a story again. Roland's been pushed into this getting his guns for his manhood by his mother's lover in hopes that he'll fail and be sent out of town. Mm-hmm. In fact, he succeeds, but we don't know what happens next. It ends with court saying, go get your guns, but he says, you know, you really shouldn't confront the man yet. You should let your legend grow, I believe he says, right? Let your shadow... Let your story should... grow into a legend or something. Yes, like exactly. Um, but we don't know what happens next, and what happens now is that Roland tells his story to the rest of the group. And I think you pointed out that this need of Roland telling his story is similar to how Eddie needed to tell Roland the story of Henry. Yeah, very much like that. And when we were experiencing that, this was after Roland was finally starting to feel the positive effects of the antibiotics. And he and, and Eddie were just making their, their fastest pace down the beach yet. Yep. But Eddie was still dealing with the loss of his brother, and he was getting over his heroin addiction. So he just had to talk. And Eddie, of course, is a talker. He's a, you know, he can't, he generally can't shut up anyway. But he had this thing. It was like a furball. Like he just had to expel it before he could move on with his life. And Roland understood this. And even though he already knew the gist of the story anyway, because he'd heard it a thousand times already, he had to let Eddie say the story. He had to let him tell it. And I think Roland feels exactly the same way. This is his, his fur ball that he needs to expel. And It's sort of funny because in that book, you don't get the sense that Roland cares one way or the other. Like, no, he absolutely he, doesn't He care. doesn't care. He's like, I've heard the story before. I know where it's going. I know where it's lead. In fact, he's been inside of Eddie's head. So he probably knows the specifics of this story. And it's a story yeah. like any other. And he's just like, whatever, just tell your story, and I don't care. But here he- I gleaned it entirely, in, in its entirety, from in the most efficient way possible, by reading your mind. But now, Roland, to your point, feels like he needs to tell it, and I'm sure he's expecting that his audience will listen and care, which of course they do, because unlike, yeah. unlike Roland, they're, they're actually a little bit more caring and not cold on the outside. I, I, I joke, because I know Roland does- is starting to care about these people more. But I think Eddie in particular and Jake and Susanna obviously have feelings for Roland and look up to him and are such that they want to hear this story and it it has an impact on him. He ends his story on a little bit of a cliffhanger. In Roland's ear, Stephen DeShane whispered six words. And you could almost hear Roland saying that, like, my father bent down and told me six words. A section break here from King and then it starts off with, what? Suzanne asked, what six <laughs> words? Well, there's this Weird Al song I really like. This song is just six words long. This song is just six words long. This song is just six, six words, words long. This song is just six words long. It's only six words long. I have known for two years, Roland said. That's what my father told me. So yeah, like you can hear, you know, they're obviously engaged by the story and on the edge of their seats to know what happens, such that even Susanna says, what six words I need to know? Tell me, tell me. But that's not the only instance of storytelling that happens in this section. Yes, Roland says the lines of the poem in his head, and and as he kind of thinks them, he 
he then follows that with whose words what poem whose words it's like why do i even know this how is this in my head it, it's more than or more disturbing than just a, your average earworm it's like like i shouldn't know this and that's because he he shouldn't this is not just or i think this is more than richard fannin somehow knowing the chapter titles of the book in which he is a character mm-hmm. this is roland quoting from the robert browning poem that was the inspiration to king for what to call these characters and inspire the base structure of these stories yeah this is like meta 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 awareness of what's going on in the story it's breaking down every possible narrative barrier and it's kind of spooky but in a way it works because it sort of aligns with how there's this all of these things leak into each other and echo off of one another how hey jude is a song in roland's world so why wouldn't child roland to the dark tower came somehow be in roland's consciousness sure it seems impossible like that should be maybe the one thing that couldn't be anywhere else because that needs to be outside of this book because it's what inspired king right right it's like when you watch a zombie show and you're and you say to the people don't you realize that they're zombies and they're like no because zombies don't exist in their world right so they yeah they always have to be freaked out that like what are these walking dead coming towards us and what do we do about it when, you know, in our world, we'd be like, they're zombies, you hit them in the head and kill them, and they don't know that right away. It's like the same sort of thing. Like, we would have assumed that Roland is in a world where he would have no knowledge of, of child Roland to the Dark Tower came, and yet, to your point, he does. And you're, there's yet another instance of this meta text when, you know, Roland, he's sort of hemming and hawing about telling this story, and he's yeah. very distracted. He's not sure what to do. He's like, I think I need to tell it. I think you need to hear it, but I'm not sure if I'm ready. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jake says, is it a Western? (laughs) And Roland, of course, looks at him puzzled. I don't take your meaning, Jake. I mean, Gilead is a barony of the Western world, yes. And and then Eddie says, it'll be a Western. All Roland stories are Westerns when you get right down to it. (laughs) You don't really need to get right down to it. I mean, they... They kind of just literally are Western. Yeah, exactly. Eddie is self-aware enough to realize, like, yeah, they're Westerns by default. He's a cowboy. He's wearing a hat. He's a gunslinger. He's got guns. His stories are Westerns. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in his world and part of his story. So I'm in a Western and he's going to tell me a story that is a Western. And ah, <laughs> yeah, right. So the story itself is really focused on Roland's confrontation with his father. We find out that after Roland earns his guns, he goes to a brothel, sleeps with a prostitute. If I, if I remember correctly, he wakes up the next morning, sleeps with the prostitute again, and his father walks in on them mm-hmm. and is confronting him, saying how stupid he is for having done this and how he really was goaded into this fight that he shouldn't have won. And really, the outcome is going to be the same because Roland's father says, I'm going to have to send you away for your protection. Yeah. Because even though you won this test of manhood and you have guns on your hips, now Martin is going to come directly at you. That was his sideways attack at you. That didn't work, so now he's just going to come straight at you. You're not going to win if he comes straight at you. And Roland, of course, being the young man who, hey, I just earned my guns and I slept with my first woman, thinks, no, Dad, I learned it from watching you. <laughs> and And fights back. And the irony here is he's 
fights back naked, much like Eddie was at, at Balazar's, you know? Yeah, there are always these echoes upon echoes, and it adds a lot of depth to when Roland says to Eddie, you fought naked and you fought well. Most men can't fight naked. And now we can think back at that scene and, and say, yeah, Roland has actually fought naked at least once in his past. And so he knows what he's talking about. Uh huh. And his father, like Roland, is obviously a good gunslinger. He moves very quickly and shoots the gun right out of Roland's hands. More gun trickery. The confrontation is about, it, it ends with Roland basically saying, hey, your wife's cheating on you. Yeah. And of course, the the twist is that he's known for two years, and, and that's where we end our chapter. But this is really a turning point for their relationship. Yeah. This is the first time that I think Roland's father has fully taken Roland into his confidence, because he is now a peer. Up until this point, he was his son, and while he wanted the best for him, most of that was just letting him be raised by the the system that was in place of training him to be a gunslinger and letting the teachers teach him and all this other stuff. So, and he was a distant father and often on an adventure of his own because he was a gunslinger. And the children seem to be on the edges of that society, right? We're, rem- right. we're reminded in the first book about how they're up in the balcony, I believe, during one of the dances and they're not aware of everything that's going on. They, they seem to sense that there's unspoken things between the adults, but the kids don't really know it. Right. And this is where Roland learns it. He sort of figured out, I saw the hickey on mom's neck. I know that this guy's done it. This is where we know now. He's stumbling through this discovery over the course of months or years. Meanwhile, his father and his quartet, they're wiser, older men, and they know, they see these things instantly and recognize them for what they are and are completely aware. That's why during that dance, None of the gunslingers applauded at the end of the dance. Right. Because they're like, how do you just throw this in our face? We know what you're doing. Yep. Meanwhile, Roland's like, well, that's interesting. I wonder (laughs) what that means, you know? That's sort of odd. So really, what ends Roland's childhood is not defeating court and earning the guns. It's not sleeping with a woman. It's not fighting back from his father and standing up to him as a man. I mean, what really ends it is those words that say to him. It seems, yeah. it seems to have haunted him, right? Like that's where the, the story is built up to. That his father, who he thinks of as like this unstoppable force, the only reason why his father hasn't taken action against Martin at this point is because he doesn't know. And then when his father reveals, I've known for two years, that means that there are things that are beyond what his father can control. And that changes Roland's perception of the power that his father has in the world. But there's more to the story because Stephen King ends this section that we covered. He ends chapter five with the palaver continues throughout the night and Roland continues to tell his story. And I'm sure we'll pick that up in our next episode with the rest of Roland's story, which I'm sure is all flowers and butterflies and unicorns and happy, right? It's like just five more chapters of hanging out with the prostitute. <laughs> oh, okay. Pretty sure that w- she becomes a main character. <laughs> nice. Well, it's that time again, Jay. You know what time it is? It's time for fun stuff. It's time for fun stuff. I have one thing that's maybe not really fun stuff, but I just wanted to kind of throw this out there. The fact that King is so heavily relying on this content from the stand. I've come to think of it as King chewing his cud. He's regurgitated a whole section of the stand from stomach number two. He's chewing on it again, and then he's going to swallow it back to stomach number three later. 
is this kind of shortcut? Is this laziness on King's part? Instead of inventing something entirely new, which he doesn't seem to have any trouble doing. No. Why do you think he's doing this? Like, I like the tie-ins to the Dark Tower. I like how things continue to find these roots and, and branches and connections to these other stories. But it seems like it's so heavy-handed. Like, he just pulled this content almost. It's not like he just copied pages out of the stand. He didn't do that. No. But the scenario and the problem and the reason for the dead people and all that stuff, he just took his... If he had done this with another author's work, it would be copyright infringement. It's not like he, he can, he's violating copyright of his own idea. What is your thought on that? Like, he's not John Fogarty getting sued by his record company for sounding too much like, like him, like, like John Fogarty. Yeah. I guess my thought is Stephen King was ahead of his time. He wanted to create a, a multiverse, a, a cinematic universe prior to uh, everybody else. So he wanted to connect everything. My real thought here is that, and I, I'll admit, Jay, I'm not usually one for spoilers. And in fact, my wife is funny because she'll be reading a mystery and I'll see her reading the book and then she'll flip to the back and read the last two pages and I'll be like, what are you doing? She's like, I want to find out what happened. I don't do that, but I did read the afterword of this book. I tend to think that afterwords and prologues are okay to read. So I read the afterword and in the afterword for this book, Stephen King calls the Dark Tower his Jupiter and everything mm-hmm. sort of revolves around it in some way. and. I think he's starting to play with that idea that, you know, maybe my works are interconnected in some way. And it's interesting to him. I mean, the whole thought of this book is that there are many worlds. And if there are if there are many worlds and they exist, then all of his stories may exist somewhere, whether directly in the world of the stand or in the world of the Dark Tower or Cujo or whatever, they all may be part of this. So that's why he feels comfortable in in using that. Okay, that's fair. I'll allow it. And to that end, I mean, one of our fun stuff is that in Topeka, they get to a Gage Boulevard, which seems to potentially be a Pet cemetery reference. I think it is. It stood out to me. I mean, how many gauges are there? That was the, my first thought as well, was uh, Pet cemetery. The biggest thing in the fun stuff section for me is the fact that this story takes place while the characters are walking along Interstate 70. They're on a part of the highway that is in Topeka, yep. but Interstate 70 is a very long highway in the United States. It starts in Cofort, Utah, and it goes all the way east. It terminates on Interstate 695 near Baltimore, Maryland. And it just so happens that where I currently live is right off of Interstate 70. And my commute to work is on 70. I get onto 70 right near my house. And get off of 70 right near work. So every day I am traveling on the same road that Roland and Eddie and Susanna and Jake and Oi are currently traveling on. And that's pretty cool. Do you stop at a Boing Boing Burger on your way home? Every day. I like the Boing Boing Burgers. Boing Boing is one of my favorite websites with all their weird and unique stuff. So I was like, oh, Boing Boing Burgers. That's pretty cool. I too used to live off of I-70 at one point, and I did find it interesting. You know, I think in the third book is when King started to say, hey, there's references to locations and places in New York, but if I make mistakes, that's my fault. But it is cool when he pulls in real life stuff as opposed to just making it up. Right. Like Castle Rock, Maine. Although I always like that conceit. By making up an entire town, then he doesn't need to match any geography. Yeah. Then he can blow it up if he needs to. Exactly. And bring it right back. 
needful thing spoiler alert there's a, a moment when boy gives one of his very close approximations of human speech and it's when jake says neat trick and oi's response is eat rick <laughs> i was wondering did oi just rick roll us <laughs> i just had this vision of the video of what does the fox say and the fox stands up and dances at the end and he's instead he's doing the Never gonna give you up. And the fox is oi. Yeah, and the fox is oi. I also thought it was cool. I might be reading too much into this, uh, like over mythologizing stuff, but they find or see a stopped clock, and the clock has stopped at exactly 414. Mm-hmm. And if you arrange the hands of a clock at 414, they are not both pointing, but they're both pointing generally in the direction of southeast on a compass rose. And that is the direction of the beam. And I think it would make sense that if a clock is, the the spring is about to die and it's about to stop, that it would be drawn like gravity would draw it in the path of the beam and that's where it would stop. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Nice little detail. One of the other, you know, we mentioned earlier about Boing Boing Burgers and is it the Takuro car is the brand that they've never heard of before. Mm Mm-hmm. But one of the other differences between this world of Topeka that they're in and, and our world is that they're all shocked because the Kansas City Monarchs, they're, who are the Kansas City Monarchs? Like, I've never heard of that team. You know, they're aware of George Brett playing for the Royals in our world, but they have no idea of the Kansas City Monarchs. And they all seem surprised by that. And they even ask, like, have things changed in different people's worlds? And nobody's aware of that. The Kansas City Monarchs are actually a fairly famous team from the Negro Leagues. So I'm sort of surprised that none of our characters were aware of it. Maybe not Jake so much because he was at a time when the Negro Leagues had already died out, but it seems like Eddie knew a little about baseball and perhaps uh, Susanna would have known about the Kansas City Monarchs team in her youth. Uh, The fact that they didn't know that at all, especially since Jake was very aware of the Kansas City Royals minor league team also being known as the Royals. Yeah, being a New York kid. Yeah, he seemed to have an abundance of, of baseball knowledge. And we know that Stephen King himself is a huge baseball fan. When he was writing this chapter, why would he go to this length to say the team by this name doesn't and has never existed seems like to fly in the face of logic. Yeah, I think he probably knew it existed, but it was interesting that none of his characters would draw that together. Like I would think at least one of them would say, oh yeah, that's a Negro League team, not a major league team. but. Eh, who am I to question the master of horror? Yes. Who are you? I think that that is it for our fun stuff this week. I'm intrigued by to see what happens next. There's going to be more to the story, I'm sure. The more that he gives us hints of what's happening in his past with Roland, the more I get interested. Our next section is called Susan. So I'm guessing it's going to have some discussion of Susan Delgado, whose king has dropped hints about throughout the first three books. Or they just start calling Susanna Susan for no apparent reason. That could be too. So we've got a decent chunk of pages. It's almost 100 pages in my paperback. So as you prepare for our next episode, be sure to give yourself enough time. I also, Jay, wanted to point out and thank our, we've got another review on iTunes and we appreciate that. And we hope that anyone else who's listening out there who enjoys our show can leave a positive review as well, because that helps people find our show and uh, we've seen an increase in traffic lately i'm guessing part of that might be due to the movie but hopefully it's also with our great fans sharing this podcast with their friends and families and other people who are interested 
in our take on the Dark Tower. Yes, please do leave us a review. I know it's uh, Apple does not make it easy with all of the hoops you have to jump through to get to the point where you can just click a number of stars and leave a few words, but it really will help our show to grow its audience. If you do enjoy our show and you want to help us grow, please take a couple minutes when you get a chance and write that review for us. And thank you for all the great interactions on Twitter. Last episode or a couple episodes ago, we asked who would be a good voice for Blaine, and we've gotten some interesting answers so far. And we also asked what your favorite book of the first three are. And Jay, you seem to be out there on an island. Not that many people think that the gunslinger is the best, but that poll is still open as of the time we're recording this. So maybe uh, you can go in and sign in under different names in Twitter and try to get the gunslinger up to number one. I did speak to somebody in person today who agrees with me that book one is the best book. If that person did not vote on Twitter, then that that person's opinion is invalid. (laughs) All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 4 of the Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass, Susan, Chapters 1 through 5. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. <laughs>